be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading the final chapters of The Scarlet Pimpernel by Emma Orksey. In the last chapter, everything almost seemed lost after Chauvelin captured Marguerite. In tonight's story, the Scarlet Pimpernel finally returns. This story has been edited to make it more suitable for sleep. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 30 The Shuna Marguerite's aching heart stood still. Her senses told her each soldier, with sword in hand, was crouching, ready for the spring. The voice came nearer and nearer. It was impossible to say how near or how far nor yet from which direction came that cheerful singer, who sang to God to save his king, whilst he himself was in such deadly danger. Faint at first, the voice grew louder and louder. Marguerite distinctly heard the click of Disgas's gun close to her. No, no. Oh God in heaven, this cannot be. Let a man's blood then be upon her own head. But God, oh God, save him at any cost. With a wild shriek, she sprang to her feet. She saw the little red gleam through the chinks of the hut. She ran up to it and fell against its wooden walls which she began to hammer with clenched fists whilst she shouted, Amand, Amand, for God's sake, fire. Your leader is near. He is coming. He is betrayed. She was seized and thrown to the ground. She lay there moaning, bruised, not caring, but still half sobbing, half shrieking. Percy, my husband, for God's sake fly. Amand, Amand, why don't you fire? One of you stop that woman screaming, hissed Chauvelin, who hardly could refrain from striking her. Something was thrown over her face. She could not breathe, and perforce she was silent. The bold singer, too, had become silent, warned, no doubt, of his impending danger by Marguerite's frantic shrieks. The soldiers had sprung to their feet. There was no need to be silent now. Chauvelin hastily shouted his words of command. Into it, my men, and let no one escape from that hut alive. The moon had once more emerged 
giving place once more to brilliant, silvery light. Some of the soldiers had rushed to the rough, wooden door of the hut, whilst one of them kept guard over Marguerite. The door was partially open. One of the soldiers pushed it further, but within all was darkness, the charcoal fire only lighting with a dim red light the furthest corner of the hut. The soldiers paused automatically at the door, like machines waiting for further orders. Chauvelin was for the moment paralysed with astonishment when he saw the soldiers standing there at attention, whilst not a sound proceeded from the hut. Filled with strange, anxious foreboding, he too went to the door of the hut, and peering into the gloom, he asked quickly, What is the meaning of this? I think, Citoyen, that there is no one here now, replied one of the soldiers imperturbably. You have not let those four men go, thundered Chauvelin menacingly. I ordered you to let no man escape alive. Quick, after them, all of you. Quick, in every direction. The men, obedient as machines, rushed down the rocky incline towards the beach. You and your men will pay with your lives for this blunder, Citoyen Sergeant, said Chauvelin viciously to the sergeant who had been in charge of the men. And you too, Citoyen, he added, turning with a snarl to discuss, for disobeying my orders. You ordered us to wait, Citoyen, until the tall Englishman arrived and joined the four men. No one came, said the sergeant sullenly. But I ordered you just now, when the woman screamed, to rush in and let no one escape. But Citoyen, the four men who were there before had been gone some time, I think. You think? You, said Chauvelin, almost choking with fury. And you let them go. You ordered us to wait, Citoyen, protested the sergeant, and to implicitly obey your commands on pain of death. We waited. I heard the men creep out of the hut, not many minutes after we took cover, and long before the woman screamed, he added, as Chauvelin seemed quite speechless with rage. Hark, said Disgas suddenly. In the distance, the sound of repeated firing was heard. Chauvelin tried to peer along the beach below but the fitful moon once more hid her light behind a bank of clouds. One of you go into the hut and strike a light, he stammered at last. Stolidly the sergeant obeyed. He went up to the charcoal fire and lit a small lantern he carried in his belt. It was evident that the hut was quite empty. Which way did they go? asked Chauvelin. I could not tell, Citoyen, said the sergeant. They went straight down the cliff first, then disappeared behind some boulders. Hush, what was that? All three men listened attentively. In the far, very far distance, could be heard faintly echoing and already dying away. The quick, Sharp splash of half a dozen oars. The schooner's boat was all he gasped. Evidently, Armand St. Just and his three companions had managed to creep along the side of the cliffs, whilst the men, with blind obedience, implicitly obeyed Chauvelin's orders to wait for the tall Englishman. The schooner, Citoyen, said Desgas quietly. She's off. 
It needed all Chauvelin's nerve and presence of mind not to give way to useless and undignified access of rage. There was no doubt now that once again that accursed British head had completely outwitted him. It really seemed as if some potent fate watched over that daring Scarlet Pimpernel, and his astute enemy almost felt a superstitious shudder pass through him as he looked round at the towering cliffs and the loneliness of that outlying coast. But surely this was reality, and the year of grace 1792. There was no fairies and hobgoblins about it. Chauvelin and his thirty men had all heard with their own ears that accursed voice singing, God save the king, fully twenty minutes after they had all taken cover around the hut. By that time, the four fugitives must have reached the creek and got into the boat, and the nearest creek was more than a mile from the hut. One or two of the men, who had run after the fugitives, were now slowly working their way up the cliff. One of them reached Chauvelin's side, at the very moment that this hope arose in the astute diplomatist's heart. We were too late, Citoyen, the soldier said. We reached the beach just before the moon was hidden by that bank of cloud. The boat had undoubtedly been on the lookout behind that first creek a mile off, but she had shoved off some time ago when we got to the beach and was already some way out to sea. We fired after her, but of course it was no good. She was making straight and quickly for the schooner. We saw her very clearly in the moonlight. Yes, said Chauvelin, with eager impatience. She had shoved off some time ago, you said, and the nearest creek is a mile further on. Yes, Citoyen, I ran all the way, straight to the beach though I guessed the boat would have waited somewhere near the creek as the tide would reach there earliest. The boat must have shoved off some minutes before the woman began to scream. The Scarlet Pimpernel may have contrived to send the fugitives on ahead by boat, but he himself had not had time to reach it. He was still on the shore and all roads were well patrolled. At any rate, all was not yet lost, and would not be whilst that impudent Britisher was still on French soil. Bring the light in here, he commanded eagerly, as he once more entered the hut. The sergeant brought his lantern, and together the two men explored the little place. With a rapid glance, Chauvelin noted its contents. Beside them, something small and white. Pick that up, said Chauvelin to the sergeant, pointing to this white scrap, and bring it to me. It was a crumpled piece of paper, evidently forgotten there by the fugitives, in their hurry to get away. The sergeant much awed by Citoyen's obvious rage and impatience, picked the paper up and handed it respectfully to Chauvelin. Read it, Sergeant, said the latter curtly. It is almost illegible, Citoyen, a fearful scrawl. I ordered you to read it, repeated Chauvelin viciously. The sergeant, by the light of his lantern, began deciphering the few hastily scrawled words. I cannot quite reach you without risking your lives and endangering the success of your rescue. When you receive this, 
wait two minutes, then creep out of the hut one by one. Turn to your left sharply and creep cautiously down the cliff. Keep to the left all the time till you reach the first rock, which you see jutting far out to sea. Behind it, in the creek, the boat is on the lookout for you. Give a long, sharp whistle. She will come up, get into her. My men will row you to the schooner, and thence to England and safety. Once on board the daydream, send the boat back for me. Tell my men that I shall be at the creek, which is in a direct line opposite the Chat Grease near Calais. They know it. I shall be there as soon as possible. They must wait for me at a safe distance out at sea, till they hear the usual signal. Do not delay, and obey these instructions implicitly. Then there is the signature, Citoyen added the sergeant, as he handed the paper back to Chauvelin. But the latter had not waited for an instant. One phrase of the momentous scrawl had caught his ear. I shall be at the creek, which is in a direct line opposite the Chat Grease, near Calais. That phrase might yet mean victory for him. Which of you knows this coast well? He shouted to his men, who now, one by one, had all returned from their fruitless run, and were all assembled once more round the hut. I do, Citoyen, said one of them. I was born in Calais, and know every stone of these cliffs. There is a creek in a direct line from the Chat Grease. There is, Citoyen, I know it well. The Englishman is hoping to reach that creek. A thousand francs to each man who gets to that creek before that long-legged Englishman. I know a shortcut across the cliffs, said the soldier, and with an enthusiastic shout he rushed forwards, followed closely by his comrades. Within a few minutes, their running footsteps had died away in the distance. Close to him, Descas still stood mute and impassive, waiting for further orders, whilst two soldiers were kneeling beside the prostrate form of Marguerite. It is no use mounting guard over a woman who is half dead, he said spitefully to the soldiers. When you have allowed five men who are very much alive to escape. Obediently, the soldiers rose to their feet. You'd better try and find that footpath again for me, and that broken down cart we left on the road. Then suddenly, a bright idea seemed to strike him. Ah, by the by. Where is the trader? Close by here, Citoyen, said Disgas. I gagged him and tied his legs together, as you commanded. He followed his secretary, who led the way to the other side of the hut, where, fallen into an absolute heap of dejection, with his legs tightly pinioned together and his mouth gagged, lay the unfortunate trader. Bring the cowardly brute here, commanded Chauvelin. With true French contempt, he would not go too near him, but said with biting sarcasm, as the wretched old man was brought in full light of the moon by two soldiers. I suppose now that being a trader, you have a good memory for bargains. Answer, he again commanded, as the old man with trembling lips seemed too frightened to speak. Yes, your honour, stammered the poor wretch. You remember, then, 
the one you and I made together in Calais when you undertook to overtake Reuben, his nag and my friend, the taller, eh? But, but, Your Honour, there is no but, I said, do you remember? Yes, yes, Your Honour. What was the bargain? There was dead silence. Will you speak? thundered Chauvelin menacingly. He did try, poor wretch, but obviously he could not. There was no doubt, however, that he knew what to expect from the stern man before him. Your Honour, he ventured imploringly, since your terror seems to have paralysed your tongue, said Chauvelin sarcastically, I must needs refresh your memory. It was agreed between us that if we overtook my friend, the tall stranger, before he reached this place, you were to have ten pieces of gold. A low moan escaped the trader's trembling lips. But, added Chauvelin, with slow emphasis, if you deceived me in your promise, you were to have a sound beating, one that would teach you not to tell lies. I did not, Your Honour, I swear. You did not fulfil your share of the bargain, but I am ready to fulfil mine. Here, he added, turning to the soldiers. The buckle end of your two belts to this confounded old fool. The soldiers obediently unbuckled their heavy leather belts. I think I can rely on you, Citoyen soldiers, laughed Chauvelin maliciously, to give this old liar the best and soundest beating he has ever experienced. But don't kill him, he added dryly. We will obey, Citoyen replied the soldiers as imperturbably as ever. He did not wait to see his orders carried out. He knew that he could trust these soldiers, who were still smarting under his rebuke, not to mince matters. When that lumbering coward has had his punishment, he said to discuss, the men can guide us as far as the cart and one of them can drive us in it back to Calais. The trader and the woman can look after each other, he added roughly, until we can send somebody for them in the morning. They can't run away very far in their present condition, and we cannot be troubled with them just now. The howls of the old man behind him, undergoing his punishment, sent a balm through his heart. It eased his mind to think that some human being at last was, like himself, not altogether at peace with mankind. He turned and took a last look at the lonely bit of coast where stood the wooden hut. Against a rock nearby, on a hard bed of stone, lay the unconscious figure of Marguerite Blakeney, while some few paces further on, the unfortunate trader was receiving on his broad back the blows of two stout leather belts. That will do, commanded Chauvelin, as the trader's moans became more feeble, and the poor wretch seemed to have fainted away. We don't want to kill him. Obediently, the soldiers buckled on their belts, one of them viciously kicking the old man to one side. Leave him there, said Chauvelin, and lead the way now quickly to the cart. I'll follow. He walked up to where Marguerite lay and looked down into her face. 
she had evidently recovered consciousness and was making feeble efforts to raise herself. With mock gallantry, he stooped and raised her icy cold hand to his lips, which sent a thrill of indescribable loathing through Marguerite's weary frame. I much regret, fair lady, he said in his most suave tone, that circumstances, over which I have no control, compel me to leave you here for the moment. But I go away, secure in the knowledge that I do not leave you unprotected. Our friend Benjamin here, though a trifle worse for wear at the present moment, will prove a gallant defender of your fair person. I have no doubt. At dawn, I will send an escort for you. Until then, I feel secure that you will find him devoted, though perhaps a trifle slow. Marguerite only had the strength to turn her head away. Her heart was broken with cruel anguish. One awful thought had returned to her mind together with gathering consciousness. What had become of Percy? What of Amand? She knew nothing of what had happened after she heard the cheerful song, God Save the King, which she believed to be the signal of death. I myself, concluded Chauvelin, must now very reluctantly leave you. Au revoir, fair lady. We meet, I hope, soon in London. Shall I see you at the Prince of Wales's garden party? No? Ah well. Au revoir. Remember me, I pray, to Sir Percy Blakeney. Chapter 31 the escape. Marguerite listened, half-dazed and weary as she was, to the fast-retreating, firm footsteps of the four men until they were gone. Suddenly, a sound, the strangest, undoubtedly, that these lonely cliffs of France had ever heard, broke the silent solemnity of the shore. It was the sound of a good, solid, absolutely British dam. The seagulls in their nests awoke and looked round in astonishment. A distant and solitary owl set up a midnight hoot. The tall cliffs frowned down majestically at the strange, unheard-of sacrilege. Odd's life but I wish those demmed fellows had not hit quite so hard. This time it was quite unmistakable. Only one particular pair of British lips could have uttered those words in sleepy, drawling, affected tones. Damn, repeated the same British lips emphatically. Zounds but I'm as weak as a rat. In a moment, Marguerite was on her feet. She looked round her eagerly at the tall cliffs, the lonely hut, the great stretch of rocky beach. Somewhere must be the owner of that voice, which once used to irritate her, but now which would make her the happiest woman in Europe, if only she could locate it. Percy, Percy, she shrieked hysterically, tortured between doubt and hope. I'm here. Come to me. Where are you? Percy. It's all very well calling me, my dear, said the same sleepy, drawly voice. But odds my life, I cannot come to you. Those damned frog-eaters have trussed me like a goose on a spit, 
and I am as weak as a mouse. I cannot get away. And still, Marguerite did not understand. She did not realize for at least another ten seconds whence the voice came, so drawly, so dear, but alas, with a strange accent of weakness and of suffering. There was no one within sight, except by that rock. Great God, the trader, was she mad or dreaming? Marguerite ran up to him, took his head in both her hands, and looked straight into a pair of blue eyes, good-natured, even a trifle amused, shining out of the weird and distorted mask of the trader. Percy, Percy, my husband, she gasped, faint with the fullness of her joy. Thank God, thank God. La, my dear, he rejoined good-humouredly. We will both do that anon, and you think you can loosen these damned ropes and release me from my inelegant attitude. She had no knife. Her fingers were numb and weak, but she worked away with her teeth, while great welcome tears poured from her eyes onto those poor, pinioned hands. Marguerite looked helplessly round her. Oh, for a drop of water on this awful beach, she cried in agony, seeing that he was ready to faint again. Nay, my dear, he murmured with his good-humoured smile. Personally, I should prefer a drop of good French brandy, and you'll dive in the pocket of this dirty old garment. You'll find my flask. I'm demmed if I can move. When he had drunk some brandy, he forced Marguerite to do likewise. La, that's better now, eh, little woman, he said, with a sigh of satisfaction. Hey ho, but this is a weird rig up for Sir Percy Blakeney to be found in by his lady. And no mistake, begad, he added, passing his hand over his chin. I haven't been shaved for nearly twenty-four hours. I must look a disgusting object. And laughingly, he stretched out his long limbs, which were cramped for many hours stooping. Then he bent forward and looked long and searchingly into his wife's blue eyes. Percy, she whispered, while a deep blush suffused her delicate cheeks and neck. If only you knew. I do know, dear. Everything, he said, with infinite gentleness. And can you ever forgive? I have naught to forgive, sweetheart. Your heroism, your devotion, which I, alas so little deserve, have more than atoned for that unfortunate episode at the ball. Then you knew, she whispered, all the time. Yes, he replied tenderly, I knew all the time. But begad, had I but known what a noble heart yours was, my Margot, I should have trusted you as you deserved to be trusted, and you would not have had to undergo this terrible suffering of the past few hours in order to run after a husband who has done so much that needs forgiveness. But Amand, she said, with sudden terror and remorse, as in the midst of her happiness, the image of her beloved brother, for whose sake she had so deeply sinned, rose now before her mind. Oh, have no fear for Amand, sweetheart, he said tenderly. Did I not pledge to you my word that he would be safe? He is with de Tournay and the others, even now, on board the daydream. 
But how? she gasped. I do not understand. Yet, tis simple enough, my dear, he said, with that funny, half-shy, half-inane laugh of his. You see, when I found that that brute Chauvelin meant to stick me like a leech, I thought the best thing I could do, as I could not shake him off, was to take him along with me. I had to get to Amand and the others somehow, and all the roads were patrolled, and everyone on the lookout for your humble servant. I knew that when I slipped through Chauvelin's fingers at the Chat Grease, that he would lie in wait for me here, whichever way I took. I wanted to keep an eye on him and his doings, and a British head is as good as a French one any day. Indeed, it had proved to be infinitely better, and Marguerite's heart was filled with joy and marvel as he continued to recount to her the daring manner in which he had snatched the fugitives away, right from under Chauvelin's very nose. Dressed as the dirty old trader, he said gaily, I knew I should not be recognised. I had met Reuben in Calais earlier in the evening. For a few gold pieces, he supplied me with this rig out and undertook to bury himself out of sight of everybody, whilst he lent me his cart and nag. But if Chauvelin had discovered you, she gasped excitedly, your disguise was good, but he is so sharp. Odds fish, he rejoined quietly, then certainly the game would have been up. I could but take the risk. I know human nature pretty well by now, he added, with a note of sadness in his cheery young voice. And I know these Frenchmen out and out. They so detest the common working folk that they never come nearer than a couple of yards of him. And begad, I fancy that I contrived to make myself look about as loathsome an object as it is possible to conceive. Ah, yes, and then, she asked eagerly. Zooks, then I carried out my little plan. That is to say, at first, I only determined to leave everything to chance. But when I heard Chauvelin giving his orders to the soldiers, I thought that fate and I were going to work together after all. I reckoned on the blind obedience of the soldiers. Chauvelin had ordered them, on pain of death, not to stir until the Englishman came. Discas had thrown me down in a heap whilst close to the hut. The soldiers took no notice of the trader, who had driven Citoyen Chauvelin to this spot. I managed to free my hands from the rope with which the brute had trussed me. I always carry pencil and paper with me wherever I go, and I hastily scrawled a few important instructions on a scrap of paper. Then I looked about me. I crawled up to the hut under the very nose of the soldiers, who lay under cover without stirring, just as Chauvelin had ordered them to do. Then I dropped my little note into the hut, through a chink in the wall, and waited. In this note, I told the fugitives to walk noiselessly out of the hut, creep down the cliffs, keep to the left until they came to the first creek, to give a certain signal when the boat of the daydream, which lay in wait not far out to sea, would pick them up. They obeyed implicitly, fortunately for them and for me. The soldiers who saw them were equally obedient to Chauvelin's orders. They did not stir. I waited for nearly half an hour when I knew the fugitives were safe. I gave the signal, which caused so much stir. And that was the whole story. It seemed so simple, and Marguerite could not but marvel at the wonderful ingenuity, the boundless pluck, 
and the audacity which had evolved and helped to carry out this daring plan. But those brutes struck you, she gasped in horror, at the bare recollection of the fearful indignity. Well, that could not be helped, he said gently. Whilst my little wife's fate was so uncertain, I had to remain here by her side. Odd's life, he added merrily. Never fear. Chauvelin will lose nothing by waiting, I warrant. Wait till I get him back to England. La, he shall pay for the thrashing he gave me with compound interest, I promise you. Marguerite laughed. It was so good to be beside him, to hear his cheery voice, to watch that good-humoured twinkle in his blue eyes as he stretched out his strong arms in longing for that foe and anticipation of his well-deserved punishment. Suddenly, however, she started. The happy blush left her cheek, the light of joy died out of her eyes. She had heard a stealthy footfall overhead, and a stone had rolled down from the top of the cliffs, right down to the beach below. What's that? she whispered in horror and alarm. Oh, nothing, my dear, he muttered with a pleasant laugh. Only a trifle you happened to have forgotten. My friend, Fawkes. Sir Andrew, she gasped. Indeed, she had wholly forgotten the devoted friend and companion who had trusted and stood by her during all those hours of anxiety and suffering. She remembered him now, tardily and with a pang of remorse. Aye, you had forgotten him, hadn't you, my dear, said Percy merrily. Fortunately, I met him, not far from Chat Grease, before I had that interesting supper party with my friend Chauvelin. Odd's life, but I had a score to settle with that young reprobate. But in the meanwhile, I told him of a very long, very roundabout road that would bring him here by a very circuitous road which Chauvelin's men would never suspect, just about the time when we were ready for him. Eh, little woman? And he obeyed, asked Marguerite in utter astonishment. Without word or question. See, here he comes. He was not in the way when I did not want him, and now he arrives in the nick of time. Ah, he will make pretty little Suzanne a most admirable and methodical husband. In the meanwhile, Sir Andrew Fawkes had cautiously worked his way down the cliffs. He stopped once or twice, pausing to listen for whispered words which would guide him to Blakeney's hiding place. Blakeney, he ventured to say at last cautiously. Blakeney, are you there? The next moment, he rounded the rock against which Sir Percy and Marguerite were leaning, and seeing the weird figure, still clad in long trader's garb, he paused in sudden, complete bewilderment. But already, Blakeney had struggled to his feet. Here I am, friend, he said, with his funny, inane laugh. All alive, though I do look a begad scarecrow in these demmed things. Zooks, ejaculated Sir Andrew, in boundless astonishment at recognising his leader. Of all the... The young man had seen Marguerite, and happily checked the forcible language that rose to his lips at sight of the exquisite Sir Percy in his weird and dirty garb. Yes, said Blakeney calmly, of all the... Hem. My friend, I have not yet had time to ask you what you were doing in France when I ordered you to remain in London. Insubordination. What? Wait till my shoulders are less sore 
and, by gad, see the punishment you'll get. Oddsfish, I'll bear it, said Sir Andrew, with a merry laugh, seeing that you are alive to give it. Would you have me allow Lady Blakeney to do the journey alone? But in the name of heaven, man, where did you get these extraordinary clothes? Lud, they are a bit quaint, aren't they? laughed Sir Percy, jovially. But, oddsfish, he added, with sudden earnestness and authority. Now you are here, folks, we must lose no more time. That brute Chauvelin may send someone to look after us. Marguerite was so happy, she could have stayed here forever, hearing his voice, asking a hundred questions. But at mention of Chauvelin's name, she started in quick alarm, afraid for the dear life she would have died to save. But how can we get back? she gasped. The roads are full of soldiers between here and Calais, and... We are not going back to Calais, sweetheart, he said. But just the other side of Grisnez, not half a league from here, the boat of the Daydream will meet us there. The boat of the Daydream? Yes, he said, with a merry laugh. Another little trick of mine. I should have told you before that when I slipped that note into the hut, I also added another for Armand, which I directed him to leave behind, and which has sent Chauvelin and his men running full tilt back to the Chat Grease after me. But the first little note continued my real instructions, including those to old Briggs. He had my orders to go out further to sea, and then towards the west. When well out of sight of Calais, he will send the galley to a little creek he and I know of, just beyond Greaseness. The men will look out for me. We have a preconcerted signal, and we will all be safely aboard, whilst Chauvelin and his men solemnly sit and watch the creek, which is just opposite the Chat Grease. The other side of Greaseness. But I. I cannot walk, Percy. She moaned helplessly, as, trying to struggle to her tired feet, she found herself unable even to stand. I will carry you, dear, he said simply. The blind leading the lame, you know. Sir Andrew was ready, too, to help with the precious burden, but Sir Percy would not entrust his beloved to any arms but his own. When you and she are both safely on board the daydream, he said to his young comrade, and I feel that Mademoiselle Suzanne's eyes will not greet me in England with reproachful looks, then it will be my turn to rest. And his arms, still vigorous in spite of fatigue and suffering, closed round Marguerite's poor, weary body and lifted her as gently as if she had been a feather. Then, as Sir Andrew discreetly kept out of earshot, there were many things said, or rather whispered, which even the autumn breeze did not catch, for it had gone to rest. The many-hued light of dawn was breaking in the east, when at last they reached the creek beyond Greaseness. The galley lay in wait, in answer to a signal from Sir Percy, she drew near, and two sturdy British sailors had the honour of carrying my lady into the boat. Half an hour later, they were on board the Daydream. The crew, who of necessity were in their master's secrets, and who were devoted to him heart and soul, were not surprised to see him arrive in so extraordinary a disguise. Amand St. Just and the other fugitives were eagerly awaiting the advent of their brave rescuer. He would not stay to hear the expressions of their gratitude, 
but found his way to his private cabin as quickly as he could, leaving Marguerite quite happy in the arms of her brother. Everything on board the Daydream was fitted with that exquisite luxury, so dear to Sir Percy Blakeney's heart, and by the time they all landed at Dover, he had found time to get into some sumptuous clothes with which he loved, and of which he always kept a supply on board his yacht. The rest is silence. Silence and joy for those who had endured so much suffering, yet found at last a great and lasting happiness. <laughs>